everyone, and welcome to Luke Law, a quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. That pagan wheel of the year has turned once more, and we're now hitting the Gallic beginnings of the harvest season with Lunasa, another Celtic seasonal festival that marks the halfway point between the summer solstice and the autumn equinox. Not one of the ones I was too familiar with, this Wheel of the Year series has been a massive learning experience for myself this year. We're a bit heavy on names this episode, so I will be doing my best with getting at least vaguely close to the right pronunciation, and I highly recommend you make use of lukeflaw.com transcripts for any of the spellings. Assorted Gaelic and Celtic words don't much care how modern English tries to write them down. Let's boldly go forth and see what gems we can find out this time. The Meaning of Lunasar This festival is a little bonus pagan thanks to the name, as Lunasar loosely translates to Assembly of or before the god Lu. The express invocation of one of the old gods sets it apart from Samhain, which is the next big milestone for the Celts, and more about a time and event than it is being linked to a set deity. Lunasar is also the Celtic name for the month of August, August being a month jammed into the calendar to glorify a Roman emperor. I'll save my rant for that for a future Luke Law. The free-faced god Lu of the Long Arm was the god of justice, oath-keeping, and nobility. He had a dual nature as both a saviour and a trickster, with an ancestry that came from the royalty of both the Tuatha Te Nanan and the Fomorians, something that very loosely, as pop culture understand it now, gave him a mixed heritage of both a light elf and a dark elf. The divine and the monstrous combined, as well as everything he learned from being fostered and raised by assorted other Celtic gods. He has a long story in mythology taking him from a prophetic birth, through to reigning over a united island, to his death and beyond, as he would still reach back from Tyr Nanog, land of the young, a Celtic afterlife, to help his ascendants. His namesake festival and month is a celebration of farming in honour of his mother, Tile Two, the goddess exhausted herself to death clearing island ready for agriculture, and so the Ionok Tale 10 became a key part of Lunasar. Tale 2's funeral games were something like the Olympic Games of Pagan Island, held in the area of modern Telltown, in the two weeks running up to Lusanai itself, and the celebration could also go two weeks into August. As shown by an Iron Age era earthworks nearby that held the festival off and on across the centuries. There's folklore claiming this goes back as far as 1600 BCE, but this may be a tale that has grown in the telling as analysis of the earthworks points more towards a still impressive 829 BCE. Competitions that would be very familiar to ancient Greeks were all present, racing with just horses or with chariots, both long and high jump, running and swimming, martial contests of spear throwing, boxing, sword fighting, archery and wrestling. Hurling, a Gaelic proto-football, had team turnouts. What's a little different, and in my opinion more interesting than the Greek Olympic Who's the Most Oiled Chad contests, is other competitions that were a part of the Einach, focusing on crafting and mental skills. Strategy, singing, dancing and storytelling made up the cerebral challenges, with goldsmithing, jewellery, weaving and armoury making up the craft contests. Running around chess beating is fine and all, but I'd be going for the gold medal in storytelling given the chance. With Lou, the god of oathkeeping, Lunasar took on special extra duties for the community. New laws were announced on the day, and a version of hand-fasting year-and-a-day marriage under the patronage of Lou was available. Earlier, more spring and summer versions of this timed arrangement were more based in flowers and threads, 
The Lunasaur one involved a wooden door with a hole to clasp hands through as a part of the ritual. As we've gone over on previous Wheel of the Year episodes, these year-and-a-day marriages, in law, as we understand a full contractual marriage now, only they could be either allowed to expire or be renewed after their time was up with no consequences to either party. Big trades and legally binding contracts of all sorts were auspicious on Lunasar as well. It was a massively significant time for Irish communities to mix together. Lunasar is another one of the festivals that Christianity only managed to finally kill off in the 20th century, after a long unbroken run. Some local hill and mountain climbing customs around the time survived or were rebranded as Christian pilgrimages. It followed a similar pattern to Beltane in Edinburgh, of a modern revival towards the end of the 20th century of either neo-pagan reinterpretations or original elements getting dusted off as cultural events. While also like Beltane, the break didn't even last a full hundred years, it still feels like something was lost in the subsumed culture. To be fair, the old did kind of coexist with the new. It just feels uncomfortable that we don't even know what we've lost, it's just... gone. Ireland's Oldest Monsters With the god Lou's unusual lineage, this is a good time to discuss the monstrous Fomorians. Chances are, if it's ancient and monstrous in Irish folklore, emerging from beneath the earth or the ocean waves, it's at least a close cousin of the ancient tribe who ruled before even the other ancient fey creatures. The exact meaning of their name is pretty muddy, we're talking old, old stories here. Fomorian, roughly and variably, means either from below or nefer, combined with the sea, demons, or giants. I'm open to it being all of these things, or none of them, and this is just kind of a modern feel of what it could mean. They kind of fit in with the modern idea of an unseely host, or that's more Scotland, the Winter Court of Fairy. Or they're a part of that, it's certainly complicated. There's no one description of any Fomurai. They're typically repulsive, distorted, in many ways malformed, Unless they suddenly aren't with some beautiful members of their tribe who are typically the ones to mix with their Tuatha Te Danan. Being mixed with goat characteristics was common, as well as having less or more body parts than a standard issue human. As these are part of what we would now call Fey, there is still some duality of nature going on here. As brutal and inhuman as they are, they were the original tribe of Ireland, and even the Tuatha Te Danan who predated humankind are the invaders pushing the Fomorai out. Some of the greatest figures in Irish mythology are descendant of Fomorians, such as Lu, who would be a pivotal uniter of Ireland and god of the pre-Christian Irish. In addition to being natural prodigies and masters of ancient magics, they also had a grasp of technology others needed of them. While happy to live in a totally wild island, foraging and hunting wild game, it was the leader Brez who taught Lu the secrets of ploughing the land for farming. While the Fomorians haunt fairy tales and myth across the millennia as monsters, there's a lot more to them than simple caricature bad guys. As vague as all the old stories are, who knows how much was lost to time. There are key parts of lore here for these dark, overworldly creatures that persist in modern storytelling. The shadow they cast is just that persistent. Let me tell you a Cliff Notes version of one of their kings. You see how much feels familiar. Baylor of the Evil Eye was one of the rulers of the Fomorai, and his name wasn't a figure of speech. He had a giant eye that he must always keep closed around his own people, for fear of his own power. Bear in mind here that one of the meanings of Fomorian is giant. This wasn't a minor case of a bulging eye. It was so immense that should Baylor want to open it, four men must help lift the lid. 
This evil eye was kept tightly covered in seven cloaks at all times to both keep it cool and keep it from unleashing an eldritch force that was essentially a magical WMD. With a single cloak removed, ferns as far as Baylor could see would begin to wither. If two cloaks were removed, grass began to redden. To remove three cloaks began to heat up the barks of trees, leaving them warm to the touch. Remove a fourth cloak, the trees would go from warm to beginning to smoke. Taking the fifth cloak away, and everything near Baylor became red hot. To remove the sixth cloak would result in the land surrounding the Dark King beginning to catch fire, and living things Baylor stirred at would turn to charred stone. To lift the seventh and final cloak is to unleash devastation. One time Baylor did this, he blasted all the western islands of Scotland, which remain withered and haunted even now. I strongly suspect the Knuckle of V, one of my favourite monsters of folklore I went into detail over way back on episode 4, The Good Folk, is for Morai. They're big, scary, they emerge from under the sea, are very disturbing to look at, and incredibly cranky when it comes to humans, especially when it comes to if humans should go unkilled when they are around. The Knuckle of V being a Fomorian that refuses to rest, riding forth into the world that should be forbidden to it to lash out the humans who have taken over, feels like it fits. These cantankerous and violent original inhabitants of Ireland are supposed to have moved to the Aoshi or Otherworld, with the Tawafate Danan and other old spirits of the world to make way for the harsh world of iron humans have wrapped the earth in. But they're still with us. When ancient giant or troll or ogre rises up to terrorise a story, the memory of the Fomorian lives on in the subconscious these stories come from. Childhood fear keeps the monsters alive and we learn to be heroes from our opposition to them. Hello everyone, I would like once again to take a quick moment to sing the praises of the Spooks, Creeps and Assorted Devilry podcast. Today we have them in their own words. Hey everyone, it's Laura. And I'm Trina Close. I'm Walter. I'm Tanya. And last, and most definitely least, I'm Rick. And we are all from Spooks, Creeps, and Assorted Devilry, a roundtable discussion podcast covering everything from Bigfoot to ghosts, aliens, tulpas, um, time slips, interdimensional travel. You get the idea. But I'm mainly here to drink and make fun of people. Uh, find us where every fine podcast is sold. Uh, you can catch us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, uh, Twitter. You know, all those things. So, thanks. Please do go check them out if you're looking for some awesome paranormal content. Let's get this bread. There's a very simple staple food associated with the early harvests. Bread! Anyone who follows me on social media will know this is weirdly significant for me. Across this year, I've been on something of a bread-making rampage, practicing the basics, getting experimental with additions, or else just cheating with some pre-mixed fancy flowers and just living my best life snacking on bread. As the first grains came in, there wasn't now much to do in the way of variety, but there was definitely a way to stay full. Those grains could become loaves. This aspect of the first harvest that would have been celebrated as Lucina got folded into Christianity across the centuries with Lamas, or Loaf Mass Day. Whether pagan or newfangled Christian, 
there were important blessings to be had with the first lobes of the first harvests. This is in large part an expression of relief and new hope, given that back in pre-industrial days, about the time that new grains were being harvested, last year's flour would be running out. It was a delicate balancing act to keep communities fed. It's very easy to take for granted that bread will be found on shop shelves, when that really wasn't a reality until relatively recently as far as human history goes. When specifically a Christian lamas, it is tradition to take a first loaf of the harvest to church on the 1st of August for blessing. Depending on denomination and local customs, one of these new loaves can be used as the Eucharist instead of Jesus crackers. A smidge of paganism can creep in around here, as people compete to make beautiful bread in the shape of animals or with ornate crusts who invoke the harvest fields. It's an ultimately simple cultural touchstone, though. If you have flour, you can make bread. If you have bread, you won't go hungry. Also, I can confirm that fresh bread is delicious. Such is the simple yet foundational importance of bread that storyteller Hans Christian Andersen made a moral tale where willfully stepping upon bread spiraled into a loaf-based Dante's Inferno. You know what? I'm going to read the whole fairy tale. It's going to boost the episode length like every other time I read a fairy tale, but it's loosener. Let's have a little Lamas celebration. The Girl Who Trod on the Loaf There was once a girl who trod on a loaf to avoid soiling her shoes, and the misfortunes that happened to her in consequence are well known. Her name was Inga. She was a poor child, but proud and presuming, with a bad and cruel disposition. When quite a little child, she would delight in catching flies and tearing off their wings, so as to make creeping things of them. When older, she would take cockchafers and beetles and stick pins through them. Then she pushed a green leaf or a little scrap of paper towards their feet, and when the poor creature would seize it and hold fast, and turn over and over in their struggle to get free from the pin, she would say, The cockchafer is reading! Look how he turns over the leaf! She grew worse instead of better with years, and, unfortunately, she was pretty, which caused her to be excused, when she should have been sharply reproved. Your headstrong will require severity to conquer it, her mother would often say to her, as a little child you used to trample on my apron, but one day I fear you will trample on my heart. And, alas, this fear was realised. Inga was taken to the house of some rich people who lived at a distance and who treated her as their own child and dressed her so fine that her pride and arrogance increased. When she had been there about a year, her patroness said to her, You ought to go for once and see your parents, Inga. So Inga started to go and visit her parents, but she only wanted to show herself in her native place that the people might see how fine she was. She reached the entrance of the village and saw the young labouring men and maidens standing together chatting, and her own mother amongst them. Inga's mother was sitting on a stone to rest, with a faggot of sticks lying beside her, which she had picked up in the wood. Then Inga turned back. She who was so finely dressed, she felt ashamed of her mother, a poorly clad woman who picked up wood in the forest. She did not turn back out of pity for her mother's poverty, but from pride. Another half year went by, and her mistress said, You ought to go home again and visit your parents, Inga, and I will give you a large wheaten loaf to take to them, that they will be glad to see you, I am sure. So Inga put on her best clothes and her new shoes, drew her dress up around her and set out, stepping very carefully, that she might be clean and neat about the feet, and there was nothing wrong in doing so. But when she came to the place where the footpath led across the moor, she found small pools of water 
and a great deal of mud, so she threw the loaf into the mud and trod upon it, that she might pass without wetting her feet, but as she stood with one foot on the loaf, and the other lifted up to step forward, the loaf began to sink under her, lower and lower, till she disappeared altogether, and only a few bubbles on the surface of the muddy pool remained to show where she had sunk. And this is the story. But where did Inga go? She sank into the ground and went down to the Marsh Woman, who is always brewing there. The Marsh Woman is related to the Elf Maidens, who are well known for songs are sung and pictures painted of them, but of the Marsh Woman, nothing is known except that when a mist arises from the meadows in summertime, it is because she is brewing beneath them. To the Marsh Woman's brewery, Inga sunk down to a place where no one can endure for long. A heap of mud is a palace compared with the Marsh Woman's brewery, and as Inga fell, she shuddered in every limb and soon became cold and stiff as marble. Her foot was still fastened to the loaf, which bowed her down as a golden ear of corn bends the stem. An evil spirit soon took possession of Inga and carried her to a still worse place in which she saw crowds of unhappy people, waiting in a state of agony for the gates of mercy to be opened to them, and in every heart was a miserable and eternal feeling of unrest. It would take too much time to describe the various tortures these people suffered, but Inga's punishment consisted of standing there as a statue, with her foot fastened to the loaf. She could move her eyes about and see all the misery around her, but she could not turn her head, and when she saw the people looking at her, she thought they were admiring her pretty face and fine clothes, for she was still vain and proud, but she had forgotten how soiled her clothes had become while in the Marsh Woman's brewery, and that they were covered with mud. A snake had also fastened itself in her hair and hung down her back, while from each fold in her dress a great toad peeped out and croaked like an asthmatic poodle. Worse than all of that was the terrible hunger that tormented her, and she could not stoop to break off a piece of the loaf on which she stood. No, her back was too stiff, and her whole body like a pillar of stone. And then came creeping over her face and eyes flies without wings. She winked and blinked, but they could not fly away, for their wings had been pulled off. This, added to the hunger she felt, was horrible torture. If this lasts much longer, she said, I should not be able to bear it. But it did last, and she had to bear it without being able to help herself. A tear, followed by many scalding tears, fell upon her head and rolled over her face and neck, down to the loaf on which she stood. Who could be weeping for Inga? She had a mother in the world still, and the tears of sorrow which a mother sheds for her child will always find their way to the child's heart, but they often increase the torment instead of being a relief. And Inga could hear all that was said about her in the world she had left and everyone seemed cruel to her. The sin she had committed in treading on the loaf was known on earth, for she had been seen by the cowherd from the hill when she was crossing the marsh and had disappeared. When her mother wept and explained, Ah, Inga, what grief thou hast caused thy mother, she would say, Oh, that I had never been born, my mother's tears are useless now. And then the words of the kind people who adopted her came to her ears, when they said, Inga was a sinful girl, who did not value the gifts of God, but trampled them under her feet. Ah, thought Inga, they should have punished me and driven all my naughty tempers out of me. A song was made about the girl who trod on a loaf to keep her shoes from being soiled, and this song was sung everywhere. The song of her sin was told to the little children, and they called her Wicked Inga, and said she was so naughty that she ought to be punished. 
Inga heard all this, and her heart became hardened and full of bitterness. But one day, when hunger and grief were gnawing in her hollow frame, she heard a little innocent child, while listening to the tale of the vain, haughty Inga, burst into tears and explain, But will she never come up again? And she heard the reply, No, she will never come up again. But if she were to say she was sorry, and ask pardon, and promise never to do it again? Asked the little one. Yes, then she might come, but she will not beg pardon, was the answer. Oh, I wish she would, said the child, who was quite unhappy about it. I should be so glad. I would give up my doll and all my playthings if she could only come here again. Poor Inga, it is so dreadful for her. These pitying words penetrated Inga's inmost heart and seemed to do her good. It was the first time anyone had said, poor Inga, without saying something about her faults. A little innocent child was weeping and praying for mercy for her. It made her feel quite strange, and she would gladly have wept herself, and it added to her torment to find she could not do so. And while she first suffered in a place where nothing changed, years passed away on earth, and she heard her name less frequently mentioned. But one day a sigh reached her ear, and the words, Inga, Inga, what a grief thou hast been to me. I said it would be so. It was the last sigh of her dying mother. After this, Inga heard her kind mistress say, Ah, poor Inga, shall I never see thee again? Perhaps I may, for we know not what may happen in the future. But Inga knew right well that her mistress would never come to that dreadful place. Time passed. A long, bitter time. Then Inga heard her name pronounced once more, and saw what seemed two bright stars shining above her. They were two gentle eyes closing on earth. Many years had passed since the little girl had lamented and wept about poor Inga. That child was now an old woman, whom God was taking to himself. In the last hour of existence, the events of her whole life often appear before us, and this hour the old woman remembered how, when a child, she had shed tears over the story of Inga, and prayed for her now. As the eyes of the old woman closed to the earth, the eyes of the soul opened upon the hidden things of eternity, and then she, in whose last thoughts Inga had been so vividly present, saw how deeply the poor girl had sunk. She burst into tears at the sight, and in heaven she had done when a little child on earth, she wept and prayed for poor Inga. Her tears and her prayers echoed through the dark void that surrounded the tormented captive soul and the unexpected mercy was obtained for it through an angel's tears. As in thought, Inga seemed to act over again every sin she had committed on earth. She trembled, and tears she had never yet been able to weep rushed to her eyes. It seemed impossible that the gates of mercy could ever be opened to her, but while she acknowledged this in deep penitence, a beam of radiant light shot suddenly into the depths upon her. More powerful than the sunbeam that dissolves the man of snow which the children have raised, more quickly than the snowflake melts and becomes a drop of water on the warm lips of a child, was the stony form of Inga changed, and as a little bird she soared, with the speed of lightning, upwards to the world of mortals, a bird that felt timid and shy to all things around it, that seemed to shrink with shame from meeting any living creature, and hurriedly sought to conceal itself in a dark corner of an old ruined well. There it sat cowering and unable to utter a sound, for it was voiceless, yet how quickly the little bird discovered the beauty of everything around it, the sweet fresh air, the soft radiance of the moon as its light spread over the earth, the fragrance which exhaled from the bush and tree made it feel happy as it sat there clothed in its fresh bright plumage, all creation seemed to speak of beneficence and love. 
and the bird wanted to give utterance to thoughts that stirred in his breast, as the cuckoo and the nightingale in the spring, but it could not. Yet in heaven can be heard the song of praise, even from a worm, and the notes trembled in the breast of the bird were as audible to heaven even as the psalms of David before they had fashioned themselves into words and song. Christmas time drew near, and a peasant who dwelt close to the old well stuck up a pole with some ears of corn fastened to the top, that the birds of heaven might have feast, and rejoice in the happy blessed time. And on Christmas morning the sun arose and shone upon the ears of corn, which were quickly surrounded by a number of twittering birds. Then, from a hole in the well, gushed forth in song the swelling thoughts of the bird as he issued from his hiding place to perform his first good deed on earth, and in heaven it was well known who that bird was. The winter was very hard, the ponds were covered with ice, and there was very little food for either the beasts of the field or the birds of the earth. Our little bird flew away into the public roads, and found here and there, in the ruts of the sledges, a grain of corn, and then at halting places some crumbs. Of these he ate only a few, but he called around into the other birds and the hungry sparrows, that they too might have food. He flew into the town and looked about, and wherever a kind hand had stewed bread on the windowsill for the birds, he only ate a single crumb himself, and gave all the rest to the other birds. In the course of the winter the bird had in his way collected many crumbs and given them to other birds, till they equalled the weight of the loaf on which Inga had trod to keep her shoes clean. And when the last breadcrumb had been found and given, the grey wings of the bird became white and spread themselves out for flight. See, yonder is a seagull, cried the children when they saw the white bird, as it dived into the sea and rose again into the clear sunlight, white and glittering. But no one could tell whether it went then, although some declared it flew straight to the sun. Well, I've done it to myself again. That was a lot more than I initially planned. The siren call of a good fairy tale gets me every time. Don't forget to check out the Spooks, Creeps and Assorted Devilry podcast when you get the chance. I should be popping up with some sort of weird loaf of bread for Lucina on social media around Monday the 1st of August. Feel free to join in with me. It's a delicious form of celebration. And don't take your bread for granted or the Marsh Woman will have you. Luke Law is a Ghost Story Guys production. If you do want to contact me, there's the show's dedicated email, lukelawgsg at gmail.com and the general show email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make day-to-day contact, as well as a very active Instagram account a lot of the community gets involved with. The Luke Law Instagram is now up and running for your more folklore-focused content needs, with a lot more to come for the Luke Law brand soon. If you want to support the show directly, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. We do have Luke Law merchandise available at the Ghost Story Guys online store. Feel very free to show off any you get online. As ever though, the absolute best thing anyone can do to support the show is to give it a listen. Share this around if you think you may know someone who may be interested, Leave a review if you get the chance to help signal boost me, and most of all, I simply hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Goodbye for now.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.